Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you have provided everything we need to be right with you. When we were unfit for your presence, you made us fit. You qualified us for your presence so that we can share in the inheritance of all who have been set apart as your people. When our minds were shrouded in darkness and earthly confusion, you revealed truth, spiritual truth and wisdom through your Holy Spirit so that we can understand the gift of Christ that you have given to us. When we were alienated from you, hostile in our minds and evil in our deeds, you reconciled us to yourself in Christ so that we can now walk in a manner worthy of you, pleasing you and bearing the fruit of knowing you. And when we doubt, we remember that you have provided us your long history of faithfulness to your people and your promises so that we know that the hope that is laid up for us in heaven is sure. So we know that if we continue in faith, placing our hope in the gospel you have given us, we will be raised to glory with Christ. But while we inhabit these earthly bodies, Lord, we need your mercy. We are tempted to doubt your good laws and righteous decrees for how we should live, and we collapse. We want what we don't have, and we despise your provision. We make our self-righteousness big and the self-sacrificial Christ small. We seek all paths of justifying ourselves in ways that avoid the cross instead of finding you through the only way, the only truth, and the only life, which is through the preeminent, supreme, reigning King, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we present ourselves to you with no excuses and no reservations. Have mercy on us for we are sinners. We trust that everything we need to be right with you has been provided to us in the Messiah. We thank you for the confidence of forgiveness that we have in him. Father, we thank you for the other churches that proclaim the Lordship of Christ in the Northwest and around the world. Lord, we pray for Salem Reformed Baptist this morning as our brother Nick provides the preaching of your word for them. We pray that gathering of your people would be knit together by your Holy Spirit, that they would have compassionate hearts for one another and gratefulness to you for all that you have provided for them. And we pray for Nick. Use him this morning to minister to that church. Use him to remind them of your goodness and your rule over all that you have created. We pray also for Bangalore Evangelical Church and for Bush Thomas as he shepherds your people there. We pray that they would grow in the knowledge of you and your word, and that your word would dwell in them richly. We ask that you would develop and mature men in that church to provide leadership that will endure the very real attacks of the enemy. Finally, Lord, we pray all of these same things for ourselves. We pray that whatever state we are in this morning, whether we have peace or turmoil inside us, let the full deity dwelling bodily in Christ capture our whole lives. That is what you have given us, so we trust that is everything we need. Minister to us through your word as our brother Hans works to apply the letter to the Colossians to our lives. We ask all of these things with confidence and in accordance with your will. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. <clears throat> It is good to see all of your smiling faces this morning. 
Go ahead and turn to Colossians 2, verse 8. I'm glad that you are in church on this high holy day of the American culture. How many of you are planning on worshiping the pigskin later today? Anyone? Just kidding, just kidding. We're in Colossians 2, 8 this morning. Old habits die hard, don't they? And one of the most ingrained habits of humanity is the desire to manipulate the divine, to manipulate the spiritual so that the deities, in turn, will manipulate the reality of nature or even our own personal circumstances to produce an outcome that we desire. One of the most obvious examples of this train of thought that I've personally seen was on one of my trips to Burkina Faso many years ago in West Africa. We were driving back from a pastor's conference we just concluded to the house where we stay there in Ouagadougou. And as we drove up, to my shock, the fields next door to the house were on fire. So I was a little concerned. And as I expressed my concern for the situation, my friend Marcel told me that they were burning their fields as a religious ritual that is common in the pagan folk religion there called animism. And animism is a mixture of nature and ancestor worship. And the burning of their fields was actually as a sacrifice to the nature spirits to ward off bad luck and harm and to ask for a more fruitful harvest. In other words, they thought that by burning their crops, they would get better crops. And this isn't a controlled burn like we do here in the States. This was at the time of harvest. So they were literally burning their harvest. Now, you see, their spiritual and cultural lens is one of fear versus power. In their minds, the natural realm and the spiritual realm are always in a constant struggle for power. And if you, as the human, don't have power, then you are in the position of fear because the gods or spirits are capricious and vengeful and they want to cause you harm. In this spiritual worldview, you will find a lot of religious activities that seek to gain power over the spiritual realm. In other cultures, there is an honor versus shame paradigm where religious rituals are intended to bring honor to your family, your ancestry, your tribe. And failure in life will instead bring shame. And you can often find this dynamic in Eastern cultures. And then there's the spiritual worldview of innocence versus guilt, which historically has been the predominant view in the West. But our culture attempts to manipulate the spiritual realm as well. It may not be power versus fear, but we manipulate as well. Health and wealth preachers will tell you that tithing a good amount will result in a more wealthy life, which you're giving away money, guys. It doesn't result in a more wealthy life. We attend church events as a kind of good luck omen to make God pleased with us so that bad things don't happen in our lives. Even our prayers often tend to be us trying to manipulate God into an action that we desire. We often exist with scales in hand, weighing whether we have been innocent or whether we have been guilty, and knowing that if we have been guilty, we should act to balance the scales so that we can manipulate God on our behalf. Catholicism is full of this thinking in their sacramental structure. Now, all of this human religious activity betrays the fact that we are still living in a Genesis 3 fall mindset. We innately believe that God is our servant meant to accomplish our sovereign will, and his law and reign is often a barrier to our happiness. So if we can somehow invent an idolatrous God, a false God that will bend to our manipulation, then everything will play out just fine, 
and we spend most of our spiritual lives doing just that. Now, all three of these paradigms, fear versus power, shame versus honor, and guilt versus innocence, are spelled out well in a book called The 3D Gospel by Jason George, if you would like to learn more about it. And while they give us an understanding of the lens that cultures use to look at the spiritual realm, they miss the overall truth and reality of the one true God and his sovereign will. For if we look truthfully at the word of God that we hold in our hands, we see a completely different truth. We see that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who would show himself in the fullness of Jesus Christ, he is not one who can be manipulated based on human whims or actions. The few places in the word where it seems as though God is changing his mind is simply a literary technique of anthropomorphizing God, showing him as more human than he really is for the purpose of the story. But you'll notice that the outcome is always still the salvific divine plan that's been there since the beginning. Now this true God, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, is a God who cannot be manipulated. He is the one who sovereignly acts and manipulates time and space to bring about his will but does so while also balancing the free agency of his created beings, including the evil and desperate activities of the demonic realm and the sinful and selfish activities of the human realm. And yet somehow, in the midst of all of it, he brings out his divine will. And we notice further that when he puts activities in place, which we would look at as religious traditions, the true God of the Bible gives us religious traditions that are not for the purpose of manipulation. The building of the tabernacle, the institution of the sacrificial system, the use of prayer, and then in the new covenant, the remaining two sacraments of baptism and communion. None of these were put in place for manipulation. They were put in place for acknowledgement and remembrance that God acted in his sovereign grace to call a people into covenant relationship with him based upon his steadfast love. And these actions are meant to refocus our hearts regularly to our relationship with him, our need for him, and to conform our hearts to his will and our place and remind us of our place as loyal citizens and subjects living under his gracious rule. And so when we're baptized and when we pray, when we read and study his word, when we fellowship, when we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we do all of this not to manipulate him, but to remind us of the identity that he has already given us and to draw our wandering hearts back into submission to his loving reign. And so when we as humans in original sin fall so easily back into the habit of attempting through our actions or our words to manipulate the spiritual realm, we need to be reminded of how futile and really how foolish and illogical it is. And this is exactly what our brother Paul is going to be reminding the local church at Colossae in our text this morning. See, standing at the threshold of their church was religious philosophies and traditions that would cause them to fall back into this religious trap of attempting to manipulate the spiritual realm. And Paul knew that it was a trap because when you try to manipulate the true God who cannot be manipulated through worship, you're actually not worshiping him at all. You're instead giving yourself over to a false god, an idol of your own invention. And you have instead become enslaved by the spiritual demonic powers that desire to draw you away from the one true God. And so Paul will begin this portion of his letter to the Colossians by warning them of this possibility. And then, in short order, he will lay out how Christ alone is the one who gives them what they're actually seeking, the spiritual power, the honor, the innocence, the victory 
the transformation, the forgiveness, and much more, is found only in honoring Jesus as supreme and looking to his work on the cross and his work in resurrection and ascension. And so to put it all together, to sum up my introduction here, Paul will clearly explain to the church this morning that the power of Christ exposes the futility of religion. The power of Christ exposes the futility of religion. So let's see what he has to say in our text this morning in Colossians 2, 8 through 15. 2, 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Paul begins this section by issuing a warning and clearly stating that that spiritual power is found in Christ alone. Spiritual power is found in Christ alone. Now, friends, admittedly, I have to start with a confession this morning. I had a hard time breaking apart this passage into manageable sections for us to digest today. What we are doing in reading this section is entering into the mind of a genius, and it is hard to break apart. That's why I wore a suit this morning. It's because maybe it'll help me. I don't know. But this is a tough passage. I think if I'm honest with myself, I've read this so many times before, and I think, oh, that's the gospel there somewhere. But when you break down the imagery, you realize Paul is giving us so much. Again, genius level in his writing here. And the reason that this is so hard to break down is that Paul, as usual, jam-packs so much into these quick, succinct statements. And he's overlaying and intertwining imagery and gives this masterpiece-level description of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. But to begin with, what he starts with is an imperative, a command that stands as a warning to those who might be led astray by the incoming religious philosophies. He says, see to it. Now, when you have a boss say as they're leaving the building, see to it, you know that this is important, don't you? You know that he's commanding you. This isn't a suggestion. This is, I need to really buckle down and make sure I am seeing to whatever he asks. See to it that no one takes you captive. You see, friends, Christ has freed us, as we will see, from any worldview other than truth. And so he is calling for us not to fall back into that captivity. In other words, it's going to be easy for you to do so. So see to it that you don't. And how would someone enslave us 
Take us captive, if you will. Well, Paul lists four things that they will need to watch out for, and each of which is ultimately based on the demonic. You see, there's one truth. Everything else does not come from the source of that truth and, in fact, comes from the source of the demonic. And this is what was described in our second reading. It's not a wisdom that comes from God, from his redemptive nature. Then it must be a wisdom that is an enslaving philosophy that comes instead from the pit. And so what are these deceitful philosophies? Well, he lists them plainly before us. He notes four things. You'll see it right there in Scripture. The first thing is philosophy. Don't be taken captive by philosophy. Now, this is not just your philosophy class in school. The Greek word is at the very base of our own word in the English, and it's a love of wisdom. That's what it means. But the implication here is that it's not a wisdom from God, but a wisdom from man. And so Paul is warning them to stay away from any system of thought that does not originate from the word of truth. Friends, any time you find a worldview that does not start with, and God has said, it is most likely a worldview that is off from the truth. Secondly, he speaks of empty deceit. The word empty is used in stark contrast to the fullness brought by Christ that we see in the next sentence. The deceit is empty. Christ is full. The word deceit here speaks of delusion, a word that means you're operating out of reality, outside of reality. It is devoid of the truth, operating in a delusion. And the delusion is that one can manipulate the spiritual. And it stands in stark contrast to the gospel, which was called in chapter 1, verse 5, the word of truth, empty deceit. So anything that stands outside the truth of God is empty deceit. Third is human tradition. And this is the delusion that Christ and his commands are not enough to live in obedience. There needs to be other things that are added onto it. It's to act out of the belief that certain practices must be completed to achieve reconciliation with the spiritual authorities. To do so is not simply to add trappings to the core of Christ. It is to worship an entirely different, idolatrous God that is capable of being manipulated. In other words, a demonic entity and not Christ. When you talk to other people who say, well, I know that you Protestants just have a slimmed-down version of the gospel. We just have additional trappings, but it's still the core of Christ. I would say, is it really because that's a God who can be manipulated? It's not the God of the Bible. Human tradition. And lastly, he notes, elemental spirits of the world. In the context of the pagan folk religions and mysticism that Paul was battling, this most likely had its parallel in the animism I talked about earlier. But one could even see it in what has become the scientism of our day, in which the scientific method, useful for discovering what exists, is confused with a philosophy of origin that informs our view of who we are and where we came from as if we are self-sustaining. And so all of these things, philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and elemental spirits of the world, you might note, have their source in human wisdom, not wisdom that originates from the source of cosmic knowledge. They are worldly systems classified by titles like liberalism, conservatism, progressivism, nationalism, hedonism, nihilism, Marxism, rationalism, 
positivism and socialism. They find their roots in scientism, psychology, political theory, pragmatism, stoicism, hedonism, and so on. And if you don't know what any of those words are, that's okay. You can go look them up today. I want, you to encourage, I want to encourage you to go look them up and study them so that you know what they are because they are all around you. They're attempting to enslave you to their way of viewing the world. Go look up even one of them. Start to understand what the world is trying to do to you. Now, you might say, Hans, why don't you take time and break them down? Because we're not here to learn about stoicism and hedonism and conservatism and liberalism. And so an even simpler way to see what they are is to become so acquainted with the word of truth, Scripture itself, that you will be able to see counterfeit wisdom as soon as it raises its ugly head. And the shortcut that so many pursue, unfortunately, in the Christian realm is to look for a person that you believe you can simply follow because they obviously know the truth. And then when they believe and preach something that is different than what you believe and preach, all of a sudden they fall off their pedestal and there's destruction. That's failure waiting to happen. And so the job of the Christian church, the job of the preacher, the job of the congregant is all to look to the word of God together, to study what's there, to see what's there, and to hold one another accountable to it. And so, friends, we need to be honest with ourselves this morning and ask, do I know Scripture well enough to be able to do that? Am I invested in the study of Scripture well enough to be able to see the truth so that the counterfeit is obvious? And then we need to be honest with ourselves and ask the question, where have I bought into other philosophies and human traditions and empty delusions and spirits of the world? Where do I listen more to their wisdom than the wisdom of Christ? I've been so encouraged when some of you have come to me and you've started to adjust the podcasts you listen to. Some of you have come to me and said, I used to listen to these podcasts that had nothing to do with the Lord or with his word, and they were informing my wisdom. And then I started to even it out and started to listen more and more to the word. Some of you even listen to the word just being spoken. And man, it affects your life in such a great way because now your wisdom is informed by the truth. So we need to ask this question of ourselves, where have I bought into these philosophies and human traditions and empty delusions and the spirits of the world? Where is my wisdom being informed more by those things than by Scripture? And maybe we should ask those around us, not those who we know will give us what we want to hear, but those who might say to us something that might cause us to rethink or to repent. The way to stay, as we mentioned last week, inoculated against these temptations into the enslavement of idolatry and futile attempts to manipulate the spiritual realm is to be instead captive to Christ rather than captive to these ideologies. And it's not as though these spiritual powers that we're talking about that are behind these ideologies, it's not as though they're weak or that we should dismiss them as false in our age of enlightenment. No, they are actually extremely powerful. They are actually extremely vengeful and ever-present and desire nothing more than our enslavement leading to destruction. And we need to acknowledge that. But contrary to them is Christ, and he alone is powerful enough to destroy their power in this world and in our lives. And it's not as though we have this good gunslinger on one side of the street and the bad gunslinger on the other, equal in nature and power. Christ's power outweighs the full sum of spiritual darkness. There is no competition. And this is Paul's point next, in that in him and him alone, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. 
See to it, he says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. By being brought into his people, given his spirit, and shown his word, we have all the experience of God that is possible to man. Do you realize that? We have the fullness of the spiritual realm. <clears throat> and the spiritual experience, simply by being Christians. And this is the reality of the incarnation of Christ. In interacting with Christ, the world interacted with the exact imprint, the image of the invisible God. And I guarantee you there were people that walked around Jesus that expected more in interacting with the fullness of God. Shouldn't I feel something? Shouldn't there be lightning bolts and bells ringing and angels flying overhead? And so they dismissed Jesus as being divine. But they were interacting with the fullness of the spiritual realm in those moments. And now, in God's word played out through the power of the Spirit in the midst of God's people, we are experiencing the fullness of the divine that is possible in the here and now. One day, we will experience the true fullness of God face-to-face, something that no one has experienced because of the renewal of earth and heaven, and God's people with him for eternity. But what is possible now in the material realm as the fullness is found in Christ and his body alone? In the Greek, Paul is doing some very amazing things here. He's using a couple of different word plays that we miss in the English, puns if you will, to show the futility of trying to find this fullness outside of Christ and his people. The first is that the verb to take captive, when he says do not be taken captive, uh, it's a word in the Greek, is, uh, I'll try and pronounce it here, syllagogon. And some commentators see this as a wordplay on the word synagogon, as if to make fun of the Jewish mystics that were coming and saying that the Colossian Christians should be physically circumcised to take advantage of being in the people of God and being part of the full nature of God. He's saying, no, you think you're part of the synagogue of God, the assembly of God, but you're actually taken captive and you're part of the demonic. They could do so, they could recircumcise themselves, but Paul is somewhat sarcastically warning them that they won't be part of the true assembly of God, the synagogue of God's true people. They will instead be part of the syllagogon. And the second is the word fullness. In the Greek, the word is pleroma. And for those bringing the beginnings of Gnostic thought to the Colossians, they believed in a spiritual realm of demons and beings that was called the pleroma. It was part of the Gnostic religion. And so to know the mind of the divine, one had to interact with the secret mysteries of the pleroma, the fullness of spiritual beings. And so by stating that the pleroma, or fullness of God, is found only in Christ, Paul is clearly arguing against Gnosticism and stating the futility of trying to find spiritual fullness anywhere else except in Christ. He's mocking them. Not only is the fullness of the power of the divine found in Christ alone, but Paul continues that they actually had already experienced it. They'd already actually been filled. You know how I said earlier that we are experiencing the fullness of interaction with God within the church? I know that some of you in your mind, because I do this, went, really? This is the fullness? Hans, I don't know, but look around the room here. This is not the fullness. Right? If we're honest with ourselves, right? We come to church and we don't have these romantic feelings that come up. We don't have bells ringing. We don't have lightning bolts hitting. And we think, 
there must be something more. Maybe I should go do something else at a different church because there it seems like people are happier and really experiencing the fullness. But friends, we're confusing human emotion with truth. The reality is, is that being part of God's people, having his word, being filled with his spirit is the fullness of interaction with the divine. And Paul continues this. He says, you've already been filled. There is no further spiritual fulfillment needed. How so? Well, this begins to dig into the next set of imagery that Paul is going to use. He starts with this odd view of circumcision randomly in the midst of it. Verse 11, uh, verse 10, he says, You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And so throughout Colossians, you will find that Paul uses this idea of being uh, of body and bodily. He uses it nine times in this very short letter. And without giving clear transition points, he flips back and forth multiple times, sometimes talking about Christ's body, uh, physical body, sometimes talking about the reader's physical body, and sometimes talking about the body of Christ, the church, or the body of flesh, the kingdom of darkness. And they're all used in concert, but you have to be very discerning as you're reading it as to which he means when you come across the word body. And so here, right in our verse, what, what is he referring to when he says that the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Christ? For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Well, the verb dwells here is what is called a present active indicative. It indicates the present state of reality. At this moment that Paul was writing this to the Colossians, he was saying the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. Well, again, where is that? Well, there is this otherworldly present reality that Christ, seated currently at the right hand of the Father, is in his incarnate, ascended, enthroned, bodily form, the fullness of God. And at the same time, and this is where our minds start to get blown. In our present realm, Jesus is found in his fullness among his true people, his church. He dwells in the body, doesn't he? And remember, the church is his present body on this earth. Just as we saw in Colossians 1.24. We saw there that he is in the body. 124, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. He says it this way in Ephesians 1, through 23. He says that God the Father put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How can people in this world experience the fullness of the realm of God? It's to know Christ and be part of the local church. Does that make the local church pretty important? Absolutely. Because that's where his body exists. Therefore, that's where the fullness of the deity dwells. And so the fullness of the deity of Christ dwells amongst his body, the church. To seek fullness of Christ, therefore, in religion found outside the local church, to Paul, makes no sense whatsoever. To do so is futile. And this sense of futility is then added to, as Paul notes, the futility of seeking spiritual power and authority over the spiritual realm by going to anything other than Christ, because he says, notice, for he is the head of all rule and authority. So if you want power over the spiritual realm, 
And this works great in evangelism in Burkina. Do you want power over the spiritual realm? Absolutely. Why do you think I'm burning my fields? Well, I actually know a guy. And he's the head of all authority and power. So you can just shortcut straight to him and you're going to have all the power you need. Right? He is the head of all rule and authority. How do we know this? Well, because he proved it by conquering the greatest adversary of mankind, death itself. He asks a, Paul asks a similar question in Galatians 4, 8 through 9. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul sarcastically says, why would you go to anything else? You have the authority. All of this activity and thought, whether it's classified under the heading of religion or spirituality, all of it is futile, aside from Christ and his church. It would be like having the seal of the President of the United States, which can gain you access to his very presence in the Oval Office. But then, on your way in, you try to bribe the Secret Service for entry instead and end up imprisoned because of it. It's that ludicrous. It makes no sense. And yet we do it all the time. I do it all the time. I use prayer to manipulate God. I think, well, I've gone to church, so God must be pleased with me. I think, well, I've equaled out my good deeds with my bad deeds today, so God must be pleased with me. All the time I sit in a Genesis 3 fallen mentality rather than existing in the identity that he has already lovingly given to me by saying, no, I have done all the work. You simply need to stand firmly fixed in the identity I've given you. In Christ, by simply being a Christian, you and I have access to the fullness of God because spiritual power is found in Christ alone. And because of this, Paul continues, transformation and conversion are found in Christ alone. Transformation and conversion are found in Christ alone. We started to read this next section. Let's read it again. In him, Christ, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, this flows straight out of our earlier point as we discussed being part of the body of Christ. And right away, we know that this is not speaking of the Old Testament version of a physical cutting off of the male foreskin. It is not the physical nature of this. So what is this meaning? Well, Paul is using Old Testament imagery here. Remember that circumcision began as the marker given by God to Abraham and his people as that which would designate them as being in covenant with the God who had freed them from Egypt. If you were circumcised, you were part of the covenant. It was a covenant established by grace, but shown by inclusion into a new tribe of people. And this covenant required separation from all prior familial and religious or idolatrous ties. Like Abraham, they were set apart from all of the other ideologies, all the other tribes, for God's use. But unfortunately, this simple physical sign was not enough to change their hearts to be wholly devoted to Yahweh and his commands, as you well know. So God commanded them to change their hearts, and he uses this same imagery. This is Deuteronomy 10.16. He says to them, he commands them, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. He's telling them, get rid of the sin, get rid of the flesh, get rid of the stuff that keeps you not aligned with my will and commands. 
But you and I know the reality. They could not, for the word is clear that their hearts were dead in sin, and so God was clear. Without this circumcision of heart that he would need to do, they would not be included in his people. Notice this in Ezekiel 44.9, Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. Now guys, this is not God being a racist or an ethnicist. This is God saying foreigner in terms of worshipers of foreign gods. Those who are not circumcised in heart, they will not enter my people. What did this mean for all of us? Exile. Exile from God. And so to those that were truly his own, this was heartbreaking, and they longed for a kind of spiritual circumcision that would allow them to cast off their sinful selves, much like the piece of flesh discarded from a literal bodily circumcision. And so God, in his sovereign benevolence, promised that this would one day happen, that their yearning and desire to be pure and righteous would happen. And we read about the effects of this in our first reading of Ezekiel, but it's summed up even uh, better in Deuteronomy 36. He says this, The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And so to the Jews in the Colossian church and the early church, what Paul is saying is an answer to generations of hopeful expectation. And to the Gentiles, what Paul was saying was surprising and would leave them awestruck that God found a way for them to be included in his people. When previously the ethnic marker of being a Gentile would have excluded them and would have kept them exiled. And so this, this news that came to them was gospel. It was good news. You already were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You were already made clean by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ's work has done this. And therefore, you were buried and you were raised. And this is a circumcision that was done without hands. It is one completed at a spiritual level. And it's initiated this new age where our hearts are enlivened and empowered to be sanctified and set apart for his complete use so that we might be transformed through his word and living that word out amongst his people, empowered by the Spirit. Friends, this conversion has already happened. It's begun the saving work of Christ in our lives. And and inclusion to God's people is no longer a physical circumcision or being married to one circumcised. It's now based on this conversion, this conversion of heart that can only be accomplished by the Spirit of God. And this is what we attempt to discern as elders in our our meetings with people about membership. Has a person had their sinful heart of flesh broken by their rebellion against the holy God? Have they understood and accepted the grace of Christ through the gospel? And is their heart now subject to the reign of Christ with the greatest desire at the core of their being to obey Christ through the gospel, to obey him at all costs? And this is not looking for perfection or obedience that's perfect but it's looking for conversion of heart. You see, to allow someone into God's people without doing our best to discern their conversion is to invite the same wrath that was given to Israel in our earlier quote from Ezekiel 44.9. No foreigner or uncircumcised of heart and flesh of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. That did not change. No one can enter the church of Jesus Christ without being converted. You might attend a service, but you are not part of the church of Christ unless God has done his work in you. 
And so in the context of Colossians, Paul is clearly accusing anyone that would bring the requirement for physical circumcision back into the local church of being contrary to God's will and plan. It's as if he's saying, the spiritual circumcision of the heart has begun. Why would you turn back to a human activity that brings no such power? And the same is true to us. God is changing you from the inside out by his spirit. It is not because you do Christian things. It is not because you listen to Christian radio. It is not because you buy Christian t-shirts or are part of the Christian industrial machine. It is not because you sit in Christian subculture. It is because God is doing the work in you. And the question is, are you allowing it? Are you partnering with him in it? Are you reading his words so that it can wash you clean? Are you standing in full submission and subjection to God's people rather than being a God yourself, an authority yourself? You see, we were drawn into the kingdom of God by his spirit, and it was his sovereign work of conversion that enabled us to be included. And it's in the local body of which we are a part that Christ is working out our sanctification using the path of sanctification he's laid out for each one of us. And so what does membership in the local body of Christ then require? It requires a dogged commitment to God and to one another that we will at every turn fight to cast off the body of sin that comes so easily and stand firm in our identity as converted and justified, sanctified followers of King Jesus, working out our sanctification together, responsible for one another, taking on the burden of your sanctification just as much as I take on the burden of my own. That's what love is. That's what commitment and covenant is. And this leads us into this intertwining imagery of baptism that he puts in. Our good brothers and sisters in Christ that still practice infant baptism, many of whom I know and love and fight for the faith alongside, they will use this section of Scripture to state that baptism has replaced the rite of circumcision. This very section. This text is one of the reasons that they baptize infants rather than creedal confessing adults. And it's not their whole argument, to be fair, but it's part of it. Unfortunately, though, that view misses the very prominent point here that what physical circumcision has been replaced by is not baptism. What's it been replaced by? A circumcision done without hands, a circumcision of the heart. The New Testament circumcision is conversion. And that happens at God's sovereign work, not through a human right or tradition. And so baptism is not the new right that replaces the right of circumcision, but rather the place where spiritual circumcision takes place. How so? Well, baptism is a kind of conversion initiation. It's a place of conversion because it's a temporal marker that I have been spiritually brought into Christ, and therefore, like Christ, my old fleshly self has started to die, and my new converted nature has risen, and I'm going to be in that fight for the rest of my material life. But it's also an initiation into the people of God. And that is why at this church, we pair it so tightly with membership. If you want to be a member, you have to be baptized into his people. And if you want to be baptized, we don't perform it as a merely religious magical ritual, as many people do. It means you are being included into membership within the assembly of God's people. This is why I disagree with any parachurch that baptizes people as if they are a church. To baptize a person outside of the local church is to practice it as a magical incantation rite, as if it gives some special spiritual power or initiates them into a cloud of mystical Christians as opposed to an actual physical body of believers. Baptism is an initiation 
rite. It's a conversion rite. They go together and cannot be broken. And this body to which they have become a part is not a mystical body known only by God. It is to be, as we see in Colossians, a physical body located in time and space, identifiable to the world and the spiritual realm as belonging to Christ. And so outward and visible entry into this people is to identify and claim that you have been saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. And thus death is symbolized by entry into the water and life is symbolized by your exit out of the water. Baptism is not a magical rite that protects you from the spiritual darkness or a rite that invites God's love, nor is it a way to assure your entry to the good place when you die. It is a symbol of the conversion of heart Christ has accomplished and an initiation into his people. Friends, this is why we don't baptize kids very much anymore is because most often what happens is a mom comes and says, Pastor, will you baptize my son? And what are they asking? Can you put some garlic around their neck so vampires can't get to them? That's what they're asking. I really want them included in the good stuff so that if they were to die, they get to go to heaven. I want them protected from the dark side. And so my question to the parent is, well, have you noticed conversion in their life? Do you know that their heart is Christ's? I don't know. Maybe we should wait for that. And this inclusion into Christ is one that has been accomplished for those who are believers now. For it's in the present that we have been given life with Christ by the powerful working of God. And this stands in stark contrast to any and all religious ideas that state that something else needs to be done to experience spiritual life or to be joined in unity with the spiritual fullness. Friends, if you have been baptized in Christ and are part of a local church, you are in the fullness of Christ. There is nothing else that's needed. And from this point, you walk forward standing fully assured that you are 100% in Christ. Now, this may be hard for some to understand, but one commentator answers with this. If we find Paul's definite statements about the effects of baptism hard to understand, it is probably because we have lost his vision of the church as the loving and welcoming family of God, the people who, by support, example, and teaching, enable one another to accept the gospel down to the depths of their being and so to make real for themselves the rich statements of Paul outlined here in Colossians. Friends, have you become spiritual nomads looking for transformation and conversion and community and a sense of belonging outside of Christ and his church? Transformation and conversion are found in Christ alone. To turn to anything else, self-help, other futile and empty forms of community that the world provides, various religious practices outside of what Christ calls us to, these will be found wanting eventually and leave us emptier than before. Spiritual power is found in Christ alone. Transformation and conversion are found in Christ alone. And Paul finishes with the fact that liberty, forgiveness, and victory are found in Christ alone. This is in verses 13 through 15. He says, "In you who were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's good news, isn't it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
I used to work in, uh, as a anal- business analyst in guest satisfaction uh, at Hollywood Entertainment, the parent company for Hollywood Video. Yes, I'm that old. And uh, I, I helped a lot of the billing department and the people that would call to bug people about their 350 and late fees. Uh, and the agony you heard over the phones when you're in collections, and any of you, I know some of you have worked in collections, when you have a record of debt that stands there and, and is held over you and begs you to, to fulfill it and solve it, and you can't, there is a, not a worse feeling in the world. Talk about enslavement. You sit there and go, how am I going to get out of this? And the interest keeps accruing. And friends, this is true in the spiritual realm as well when we try to stand firmly on our own righteousness or on our own activities. We are like the people in collections that can never get ahead because our sin just keeps accruing interest of debt to God. And so Paul continues this line of thought that we were dead in our trespasses against God's holy reign. We were in debt to him. But God, by his sovereign action alone, not through our manipulation nor through our choice, but by his work, he made us alive through Christ and with Christ. And this was only possible because he made a way for those trespasses that we had committed, that you and I had committed, to be justly dealt with and paid for. If God had simply dismissed our trespasses without retribution, he would not be just. But if he refused to forgive them, he would not be merciful. And so he found a way to achieve the perfect unity of his character. He would send his son, the head of all authority, to to express the image of his being and to die in the place of those who had rebelled against his very reign. We were enslaved in spiritual death, enslaved to the powers of darkness who had blinded us and deceived us to the truth of God's wisdom. We were spiritually dead, and can a dead person raise themselves? Can a dead person raise themselves? Not at all. And so we were destined for an eternal torment, unable to choose God, and all of this by our own doing. We were uncircumcised of heart outside of the covenant people of God. We deserved outer darkness and exile from God's presence and the source of life that he gives. And without his help, without his divine grace, we would have been stuck in that place. And yet... God made us alive. He chose you and I to be his own and welcomed us into his covenant grace by his choice alone. He enlivened our hearts and brought us to life. He raised the dead so that we might respond to him. He paid the price for our very trespasses against him. And by his enthronement at the right hand of the Father, he was given the authority to cancel the record of debt that we had accrued as humanity and individuals in sin. And friends, like I said, this is a growing record of debt. This was a growing record of debt that if called to account would have meant our immediate imprisonment and our eternal punishment. Its legal demands made us indebted to it, and therefore it stood opposed or contrary to us. Paul is most likely speaking here of the Torah, the law of God given to Moses and broken by Israel and really all of mankind. But rather than simply removing it, rather than leaving us beholden to it, Jesus came in perfect obedience to that law. In essence, he became the manifestation of the Torah. In doing so, 
He could easily stand in righteous judgment against us, declaring our imperfection, shaming us for our rebellion against that which he perfectly fulfilled. But rather than do that, Jesus came instead as the perfect manifestation of obedience to that law. And he was nailed to the cross as a sacrificial substitute in our place. He became that record of debt. Paul speaks of it this way in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul also says he became sin for us. And so this isn't just a slip of paper that's nailed to the cross. This was Christ himself becoming the indebted one. In Christ's sacrificial death, the debt was called forth in fullness. And Christ paid it on our behalf. Friends, if you take a moment like I do and you think of the debt owed to God by your very trespasses, whew, and that's my sin, not the entire world's. And he became that. And he was nailed to the cross for it so that we could be justified. He alone made it possible for our debt to be canceled so that we didn't have to pay it because we never could. In that moment, going back to the imagery of verse 11, Christ died as the representative head of all sinful flesh. And in his death, he put off the body of flesh. And three days later, Christ rose in resurrected glory, the first among those who would be transformed without human hands in the circumcision of their heart. Christ was not uncircumcised, so to speak, in terms of a sinful nature, but he was the first to be included into the covenant people that his sacrifice had now formed. And this is what's meant by the circumcision of Christ. And so we were forgiven our debt and freed from the kingdom of darkness to whom we were indebted. But Jesus' work didn't end there. He also gave us victory over those very powers to whom we had been enslaved, the very debt masters that we owed to. Jesus was victorious over them. And so he's crying out to the Colossians, and he cries out to us, why go be enslaved to them once again? I was victorious over them. You see, the earthly rulers and authorities that were backed by de demonic and spiritual authorities looked at Jesus, and they celebrated the thought of putting him to open shame and being victorious over him. And these are the powers to whom we are appealing when we give in to any philosophy or religious idea that does not have its source in Christ. But as stated in our first reading, earthly wisdom cannot grasp the true wisdom that is from God. This was from what Colby read to us in 1 Corinthians 2. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They believed they were stripping Christ bare of his power and holding him to public contempt, when in fact his act of sacrificial love was doing that to them. And so when they brought false charges and murderous punishment against him, they were only cementing their egregious rebellion against his rightful throne. And it was in this act of death on the cross in our place where he forever and always disarmed their ability to harm his people any further 
with any record of debt that they held in our faith. And so when the accuser of the brethren stands before you, when he speaks to your mind and heart and he accuses you and says, you are in debt, you better make it up. You can stand fully assured and look him in the face and say, no, that debt was nailed to the cross and I am innocent. I am forgiven in Christ. You have no power over me. This is the power of the cross. His loving sacrifice stood in stark contrast and would be proven as the true wisdom and the height of sovereign glory when he arose from the grave. At this point, not only had he disarmed the foolish earthly and demonic powers, but now the wording Paul uses speaks to a victory parade in which Christ leads his people in triumphal procession with their defeated foes put to open shame as they are paraded through the streets naked, shown for all that they are, weak, rebellious, foolish, demonic beings who have been defeated. And Paul portrays it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Spiritual power is found in Christ alone. Transformation and conversion are found in Christ alone. Liberty, forgiveness, and victory are found in Christ alone. Why? Oh, why would I ever look to any earthly philosophy or religion? Why would I ever look to any false god to bring these very things that Christ has already purchased by his blood? Why would we do that, dear friends? Why would we look for wisdom anywhere else? Why would we not immerse ourselves in what has already been given? These are the questions of application this morning. These are the motivations that should drive us to our knees this week to come to the word of God like a deer that pants after the water. For the Colossian church, Paul was warning them that temptation was coming to draw their eyes and hearts away from Christ to seek some form of spiritual or earthly power that only Christ could provide. And the same is true for us. It might just take on a different form We live in a world that promises to grant you power over that which you fear or innocence when you feel guilt or honor when you feel shame or community when you feel lonely, but you just have to give in to the philosophies that are backing it. You just have to fall in line with what the world declares to be true. But friends, hopefully today you can see that the power of Christ exposes the futility of religion and the futility of worldly thought, the earthly wisdom that's behind false religion. God cannot be manipulated or bribed. To attempt to do so declares that we are worshiping something or someone other than the true God. The God we serve has already provided power. He's already drawn us into his people. He's already given us converted hearts. He's already begun the process of transformation. He's already given us liberty from the powers of darkness and victory over them. And he's given us forgiveness in light of our sins. Friends, today, stand firm in your position in Christ. Let no one take you captive. Stand firm in that position in Christ so that you will not be taken captive by any worldly wisdom that wants to ensnare you and pull you away from Christ and his body, the church. Would you pray with me?